thing we have to fear is fear itself, fear itself. From the Center for History and New Media at George Mason University, this is Digital Campus, a bi-weekly discussion of how digital media and technology are affecting learning, teaching, and scholarship at colleges, universities, libraries, and museums. Digital Campus, episode 112, Digital Campus Classic. Well, welcome everybody to Digital Campus number 112, the first day of spring edition where it is snowing in Virginia. Uh, Dan, where are you? I'm so sorry to the folks in Virginia because I'm up here in Boston where it is a a balmy uh, 18 degrees with still about two feet of snow on the ground. Only two feet. Wow, that's it's been (laughs) melting down. It has melted. It has melted quite a bit, but uh, still plenty outside if you want to come sledding. Yeah, and Tom, Tom Scheinfeld, where are you located? Are you in Connecticut today? Yeah, I'm in Connecticut today. I'm at the home office uh, in West Hartford, and we've still got plenty of snow, too, and six inches predicted for tonight. So, All right, so happy, <sighs> happy springtime. Spring. I know. Happy first day of spring. Well, I will just say that it is, although, you know, Virginia, this is Mills Kelly, by the way, from the Center for History and New Media. Um, I should mention that was Dan Cohen in, in our Boston affiliate of Digital Campus and Tom Scheinfeld at our Connecticut affiliate of Digital Campus. And, you know, we're just increasingly a global phenomenon. But um, you know that it's been quite a winter, even in Virginia, when a 16-year-old boy who normally would be in favor of lots of snow days looks out the window of his Virginia home this morning and says a word which I can't repeat on this family podcast. (laughs) But um, that's when you know that it's that we've had a lot of a lot of winter even in Virginia. So um, also we have a couple of fabulous graduate students helping us out today. Um, Anne McDivitt and Alyssa Ferringer. Thanks, Anne and Alyssa, for <clears throat> your help on the podcast. So we're gonna we're gonna do something. Maybe it's a little radical, but it's digital campus classic. For those of you who have been with us through the previous 111 episodes, and I know there's at least one of you out there who's geeky enough to have listened to all 111 prior episodes, back in the day, or in the olden days, as my history students would say, um, we used to talk a lot about tech, and as opposed to other kinds of things like, I don't know, copyright or, well, <clears throat> the Google Books lawsuit, which we're not going to talk about today. Instead, we're going to talk about tech. So the first of those stories is that we're going to think about, comes to us from, we noticed it on TheVerge.com. Those of you who read The Verge may have seen this already, but um, and it's about Microsoft killing off the Internet Explorer brand. Dan, how could this be possible? Uh, don't you remember the original Internet Explorer for the Mac with that uh, turquoise frame that it had? It was so delightful to look at. Um, and, uh, you know, I suppose everything, you know, for every season since I guess we're heading into spring here. Um, by the way, it's our eighth anniversary of this podcast. Just uh, realized. Which is why we, you 
Dan, you, Tom, yeah. and I, we are classics now. I yeah, the, no, this is the getting, OGs. Right. It's like classic rock, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if folks remember way back to uh, more than eight years ago, I think it was, what, 20 years ago. Yeah, um, when and, and I'm especially thinking about really the first, it was the first decent browser for OS X on the Mac, um, which was something of a re relief because there were all these like really goofy browsers um, that, uh, uh, you know, weren't very fast, um, you know, they were a little bit too techy. And so, you know, I think there was something to Internet Explorer early on, um, at least for the Mac. Um, obviously on the PC side, it was a um, shameless and largely successful attempt to destroy um, Netscape and uh, in that brief period in the early 90s where it seemed like Netscape was going to take over the world before Microsoft crushed them. Uh, but, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll pour one off a, a bit for Internet Explorer. Of course, later on, um, not that much later on, at least by the late 90s, then it came to become essentially a browser monopoly and everybody had to start designing for it and uh, horrible sites emerged that required you to use Internet Explorer. Remember that? I mean, there are still sites on the web that say Internet Explorer is the preferred browser, which is oh, pretty yeah. hilarious. Um, this site. My wife, my nice. wife works for, a, you know, a large multinational and um, a lot of their intranet still kind of only operates on, um, in some cases, IE6. You know, so like a browser that was introduced in, what, 2002, 2003, something like that. Um, so it still has, and, and it's not going, and we should, we should note that, that Internet Explorer isn't going away entirely. It is still going to be um, available, uh, bundled with Windows um, for, just that, for just that reason, because there are still lots and lots of websites, especially kind of corporate in intranet sites, um, that are built for Internet Explorer. And, you know, I think there are plenty of those in, in I, I remember, you know, doing travel authorizations and things at, in the, the Virginia State system. Um, there's a lot of web websites like that, that government, corporate, other other sites that are built for Internet Explorer. So it's so it's not going away entirely, but um, but as a kind of mainstream consumer product, it it is it is going to go. Well, you know, I, I one of the things listening to you talk about it, it, it reminds me of one of the things I like about the Microsoft Corporation, and, and which I don't often say. That's not a phrase that just sort of trips off of my lips that I like about the Microsoft Corporation. But one of them is what Dan mentioned about the fact that it's not going away entirely. And, and that is that I, I like the fact that Microsoft makes it possible to get back to older versions of things, um, unlike our friends in Cupertino who don't want you to go use the old versions of things. And, and so, because we, you know, this is one of the problems we have in digital humanities is that, is that we have, you know, a site that was built, you know, a really good project that somebody created in 2001 that was in those days optimized for Internet Explorer. And if you need to see it in its original form, you'll still be able to do that. Um, it's, yeah, you, you can still find Netscape. In fact, I know a George Mason employee who still uses Netscape on her computer and refuses to change from that browser. And how it still works, I have no idea, but it does. Uh, but so I do, I, I appreciate that from the Microsoft Corporation is that they do let us continue to use those older versions of things. Well, and I think the, the, the other thing to, to mention about 
you know, sort of 15 years after the the Microsoft um, antitrust lawsuits and and the European uh, Union actions against them, um, is to say that you know when when Internet Explorer which was bundled with Windows 95 and then Windows 98, um, which led to those antitrust suits, um, and which Dan right, you're Dan, you're absolutely right, um, was a shameless attempt to kill off Netscape. Um, it, it was, but it, it it also I think accelerated the adoption of the World Wide Web as the kind of de facto um, platform for sharing information on the on the internet. Um, you know, when everyone you know bought their new Windows ninety five computer, there was a big E on the desktop, and and you could just click it. You didn't have to figure out how to you know buy a a, a CD of Netscape at Best Buy or CompUSA or wherever you got it and load it onto your machine. Um, you could just kind of click this button, and and there you were on the web. Um, and that wasn't true before for Internet Explorer. And so while they managed, you know, while it was a, a ploy to gain a monopoly in that space, it also meant that because they already had a monopoly in the desktop um, operating system space, um, it meant that that the web was became really what what it is today, which is which is sort of synonymous with the Internet, which it, it wasn't before 1995. Um, so so there's something to be said for for uh, Microsoft's um, cynical, <laughs> cynical market behavior. Um, and we, I think we do owe something to, to Internet Explorer today. Yeah. I mean, surely a lot of people would not have picked up the web as quickly. And I think about, you know, my parents, um, that, that was their entry point to the web. Um, I think Tom, you're exactly right that, I mean, Netscape, while whatever Silicon Valley loved it and techies, loved it and it was in a sense first out of the market and had this huge IPO which probably made more news than the browser itself um, it you know it still required you to really understand what the web was and if you remember even early on Netscape um, was like a communicator as well you were supposed to also be able to write web pages with it and it became a kind of uh, bloated package in the same way that some of the Microsoft uh, products became bloated packages and uh, um, you know, thus the need for something like Firefox, um, which, which essentially came out of some of this legacy code um, uh, once it was open source. So um, it is interesting. I mean, in another sense, the fact that this didn't make that much news, um, you know, it wasn't like on the front page of the New York Times or anything like that, tells you a lot about uh, how relevant web browsers are to 2015. And yeah. uh, certainly I think mobile phones have done a lot to you know, just, uh, I don't know, take the emphasis off uh, looking at something at 1028 or whatever it is, 1024 by 768. Now I even forget the, the dimensions. See, it's like, <laughs> it's been so long since I thought about like, please view this site in Internet Explorer on a 1024 by 768 monitor um, for optimal experience. So uh, it is strange how for it's all For a classic experience, Dan. For it's classic, a classic, I know. Classic Gosh. experience. Oh, 1024 was so big. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, when you went up so from much the 800 the, by 600, 800 by 600 was so cramped. And then 1024 is just like a great size for a yeah. web browsing. Okay. This podcast is getting too nostalgic. Well, let's, let's, well, let's then let's talk a little bit about why uh, Microsoft is, is actually doing this and what they're going to replace it, place Internet Explorer with. They're going to replace it with something codenamed Spartan, a new, a new browser. And really what, and that browser, um, 
is really intended to uh, complement and facilitate Microsoft's new um, operating system strategy, which is kind of one operating system for every platform. Um, so Windows 10, they, they started this with Windows 8, but really I think they're going to advance it with Windows 10, which is um, already um, uh, in, in uh, uh, beta preview, um, but will be launching later, I think in the spring. Um, but that, that new operating system, Windows 10, will be one operating system for the tablet, the laptop, the desktop, and the phone. Uh, sort of a uniform experience across all of those platforms. And they're building a web browser that will operate um, across all of those platforms kind of equally well, or at least that's what they that's what they hope to do. And what's interesting sort of about this is my I, I think what's interesting about it is um, Microsoft's strategy, it seems now, is almost like they're 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 sort of borrowing from web development in a sense. Like we've been building responsive websites for the last few years to try to build websites that will respond equally well on multiple um, platforms and form factors and screen sizes. Um, Microsoft is almost building a responsive operating system or hopes to build a responsive operating system, which will be one operating system, which you can kind of put on any any device um, and will respond equally well. And this new Spartan browser is really intended to be um, part of the, you know, sort of a cornerstone of that of that strategy. So it actually is kind of interesting, although you're totally right. It didn't it doesn't get the play it it it. it would have 10 or 15 years ago. But it is, I think, going to be something to watch in the next uh, couple of months to see how that plays out and whether and whether uh, uh, Windows 10 is sort of the, the good Windows. We always say that Windows, you know, right? Like Windows, it has, a, it has a good version and then it has a bad version and then it has a good version. So like Windows 7 was, you know, roundly applauded as a good version of Windows. Windows 8, has been a miserable, miserable failure. Um, we'll see if Windows 10 is again the the, the good Windows, um, as I think lots of people hope it will be. And that's just another classic theme. So, uh, <laughs> speaking of classics, cast your minds back to June 29th, 2007. Quick history quiz: What happened on that, that day, Dan, Tom? Uh, I, I know this because there were members of the Zotero team that I think were like online for it, but I believe that's when the uh, original iPhone was released. Bing, 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 bing. You are the <laughs> Dan Cohen. And of the three members of this podcast from back in the day, I remember we could go back and find the recording from our, our digital campus archives. Dan, Dan was getting a lot of grief from Tom and Mills about, so Dan, got an iPhone yet? Dan, got I, I did Dan? not get. I was not one of the people standing on lines. I, I will not. I, I will not mention the certain people from the Center for History and New Media who, in fact, <laughs> who did get it. one on the first day, and then. Um, however, yes. however, of the three members <laughs> of this podcast today, for sure, you were the first. So that being the case, got your Apple Watch yet, Dan? <laughs> That's it's amazing. I I always get things uh, pre-release from Apple because of uh, frankly because of this podcast uh, and my dormant blog. They really like to give me this stuff early so I can uh, <laughs> juice up the marketing. Um, I I don't have it. I mean I I I well this is like famous last words. I think I said on this podcast I would not get I would not get on Twitter. I would not get an iPhone. I probably said lots of things on this podcast. That did not end up um, uh, being true. Um, 
I, I can't imagine I'm going to get one of these things. Um, I, you know, I don't wear a watch is I think probably the biggest oh, thing of all. Yeah. I, I don't like having something on my wrist. I mean, I type a lot, obviously, and um, I tried a Fitbit for a week and I do run. So like I, I, I get the sort of the fitness need a bit, but I also have decided in my, um, my later years that I hate tracking my runs. Like I don't want to see exactly how far I've gone or how I did this week versus last week. It drives me up a wall to quantify my exercise like that because it's just a depressing way to go about life. Um, but I know that that's something for some people. And you're um, getting slower, Dan. I know. Yeah, that's that's what all it shows you. Um, the uh, I think the one thing that's semi-interesting to me is um, the argument that maybe it will reduce the time we're spending staring at our phones. And um, I, I do... <laughs> You know, of Here's course, a good reason to make a product. Right, so get get another gadget. Other product so much. Exactly. Use use this other gadget more, so you won't use this third gadget. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's. I think that's that's kind of the one um, thing that that you know by glancing at your phone. It, it, I mean by glancing at your watch, and because the watch is somewhat limited, there's no web browser on it. Speaking of web browsers, etc. You know, maybe you'll use the the digital stuff a little less. Tom, you gonna you gonna take the plunge on the watch? No, I I probably won't. I do actually have a Fitbit which sits on my wrist and and that's about it. Um, which I, I sadly don't use um, probably as well as I could if I wanted to be a healthier person. But um, I I don't think I will. I. And it's probably for the probably for the 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 reason, Dan, the reasons Dan talked about, um, you know, I I don't I I don't feel like I need another device. I don't feel and actually I don't feel like I want to be connected any more than I already am. Um, You know, I've I'm the kind of resident Apple skeptic uh, of this bunch. and I, I do have some skepticism about how successful this product will be for Apple. I, you know, I my wife said something to me the the other day, and she, when 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 the announcement was made, and she's like, um, you know, are you going to get one of these things? And I said, ah, I don't think so. And she said, I don't get it. You still need your phone, right? <laughs> which. Right. Which, which actually sort of struck me as like, yeah, you like, you need, you still need your phone and you, and it's, that's not just, I, I mean, I think that's partially because it enhances the, the, um, the capability, capabilities of the device that, that Apple wouldn't want to, couldn't build the capabilities they want to build into a device that small, um, without kind of having it tethered to the phone at some times and in some ways. Um, but I also wonder if there isn't sort of a larger issue here for Apple, which is that, that, you know, their business is all about selling phones and they don't want you to not buy the phone. 
right? They want you to buy both the phone and the watch. And I just wonder if there isn't sort of an opportunity in the marketplace for some other company that doesn't build phones to come along and build a really nice smartwatch that doesn't depend on your phone at all. And they don't, and you know, I mean, they, they could do that because they wouldn't be cannibalizing their own sort of revenue stream by doing that. I just wonder that if, will, will the Apple watch ever be untethered from the phone? Um, because why, what's the incentive for Apple to do that? Um, why would they, why would they cannibalize their phone sales? So I just, I just, I, there's just sort of a, there's kind of a weirdness about the, the, the fact that it's this like ultra portable device that has to be kind of attached to another device that sits in your pocket. Um, it just doesn't quite, you know, do it for me. Yeah. You know, when I, I have to say, I had a I had a kind of a queasy feeling when I saw the first ads for it, and it's because cl- listeners of the classic editions of the podcast will remember that back in the even older days, I taught at Texas Tech University, way out in western West Texas, near the New Mexico border, and that's cattle ranching country. And back then, it, a cool new application for satellite technology was little um little things that were attached to the ears of cattle way out on the range and this is you know big country cattle ranches hundreds of square miles and they could use these devices to give sort of goose the cows in the directions that they wanted i'm assuming it was some sort of an electric shock in the ear of the cow which caused the cow to go left or straight or right and i watched these ads for the apple watch and i thought Wow, we're getting pretty close to that now, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) That is excellent. So it just makes me a little nervous. On the good side, (laughs) however, on the good side, uh, Sylvain DeVille, a research scientist at France's National Center for Scientific Research, has reimagined the iWatch for academia. This comes from the Chronicle of Higher Education, uh, a brief story there. Um, And he has some, I think, now when I read you these, perhaps you're going to change your mind, guys. So, for instance, citation alerts. Real-time instant ego gratification about citation of your work. Your watch will buzz on your wrist. Dude, you got a citation. Uh, or, wait, wait, wait. Someone writes like an article that footnotes your article and you get a buzz on your wrist? Instant buzz on your wrist. Ooh. Real-time notification of citation. <laughs> you need that How right away. academics would go for that? So, or even better, caffeine sensor. How long has it been since you've had the last cup of coffee? Your caffeine levels are getting a little low, Professor Cohen. You might want to think of juicing back up again, and your watch can remind you with a nice little sort of steamy coffee cup right there on your wrist to remind you that it's time. Could be good. Or even better, the ult- he's, he calls it the ultimate reading experience, PDFs on your wrist. Okay, the All type right. will be a little <laughs> So... So, you know, I think we give some smart people like uh, Dr. DeVille in France a few years to develop some interesting applications and maybe it could be better. But, yeah, I'm with you. I actually have like a watch watch. It has, it has, it has like a, a short arm and a long arm and a second hand that goes around. I kind of like looking at it sometimes. It's sort of so old school. 
Um, so I might just keep that instead of the Apple Watch. Yeah, I mean uh, the one the the one sort of obvious application, you know, or the the most talked about application for higher ed and 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 academic research um, here is this is is the other announcement that they made uh, that Apple made um, in during the the watch announcement, um, which is of um, Apple Research Kit, which is um, a, a software framework, um, software development. Um, kit to uh, allow researchers, primarily health researchers, um, to build applications that will take advantage of the the body sensors that are embedded in the the Apple Watch. Things like you know the 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 gyroscopes, the the um, the the pedometer, the um, GPS, you know the other the other the other kind of aware sensors that are built into the watch. Take advantage of those to build apps to conduct um, studies uh, on on human subjects. Um, you know, I think they're just saying the term "human subjects" raises a whole bunch of of worries in academia, um, right? Like, yeah, right. Of, automatically, I think we all probably are sitting on it. Now we're uh, cows, right? Um, right, exactly. But I do. I mean, I do think that um, we'll see what's built on Research Kit, but it it could be it, it could be an interesting um, an interesting development. Um, that 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 to me seems like a real possible use for this, for this technology. So in some ways I almost think it might be a better use and a more interesting use than the kind of consumer use that, that most people are, are talking about. Well, I'm, I'm holding out for, uh, will I am's, uh, new Gucci watch that in fact does (laughs) have a, uh, cellular connection. Um, so, uh, this is a real thing. We'll link to it from the show notes, but, uh, He's got his own smartwatch coming out. And, uh, you know, if you like the Black Eyed Peas, um, I think you'll definitely like his Gucci watch. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the initial review says that from your trendy lofty apartment, you will be yelling at your wrist to talk to someone. <laughs> <laughs> so evidently it doesn't quite work as advertised, but, um, you know, come on. Will this I am. is all just proof that all we're really trying to do is come up with the technology that the creators of Dick Tracy came up with. But exactly. uh, so, and then in this same sort of worrying about or wondering about or grumping about, because we're sort of sounding like Digital Campus, the Grumpy Old Men edition. Um, the uh, the the I have news for the people at at the Apple Corporation, and and they might have missed this and all the hubbub about their new products and things like that, but. Okay, Steve Jobs is dead. (laughs) And the reason I feel the need to mention this is because now that Steve has been gone for a while, it would be okay to put a USB port in the iPad. Yeah. And so... I don't know. Like, why can't we have a USB? I know that Steve Jobs didn't want people to have USB ports and iPads, so we didn't. Well, they should have plenty of port hardware lying around because turns out the new MacBook won't have any ports except a, U- port, except a USB headed. port, right? Like, they, <laughs> right. they have all kinds of extra ports, right, so, the, on the factory floor. That's right. So this could be because, you know, when I when I watch people use a Microsoft Surface, it's awful nice to watch to just I, I feel this sort of 
tablet envy when they when they take that little thumb drive of theirs and stick it in their tablet it's just pretty cool and like revolutionary technology kind of stuff you know and so maybe apple could think about that but uh, tom you mentioned that they have this new single port thing what what is that so the, the, they've released a new MacBook, right? It's not a MacBook Air, and it's not a MacBook Pro. It's a MacBook. So it's sort of a third uh, um, laptop in their stable, as I understand it. Um, and it's um, it's thin like a MacBook Air, um, but it, the hardware is a little different. And it turns out it only has a single port. That includes the power cable, right? So it, you will not be able to, let's say, plug in a USB headset and power the machine at the same time, right? So it has, it has only one place to plug anything in, including, well, it has a headphone jack. So you do, will have a headphone jack, but, but that's it. A USB port for power and peripherals um, and a headphone jack. Yeah, and but you can it. you can get an eighty dollar dongle that you will leave in a hotel room every three months. Um, that <laughs> adds right. those it's capabilities, Tom. It's not a USB port. It's like what do they call it? A Thunderbolt port. And and so you have to you can only do it with a dongle. I mean, I have a MacBook Air, and I like being able to stick my thumb drive in there. You know, it's kind of nice. And and I like being able to. To put in my the the SD card from my camera and load it. Now with this new one, I'm not going to be able to do that. I mean, this is a long. This Apple has a long history of doing this, right? Like Definitely. building machines where, like, when when every machine had a like a a, a, a CD-ROM drive. Apple started building machines without CD-ROM drives. And and we sort of had, I don't know if we were on this podcast yet or not, but the, the conversations were always like, how the hell is anybody going to use a computer without a CD-ROM drive? And today, none of our, none of our laptops have CD-ROM drives. Right. Um, so Apple has always been at the forefront of this. I mean, this is taking it to something of an extreme, but I, I do wonder if it's just maybe we're all... You know, we're just, you know, in grumpy a couple old years, men. grumpy old men, everybody, everything will be connected by Bluetooth. You won't need any, you know, it'll all, everything will be wireless and people will wonder why did it, why did anybody need anything plugged into their machine? It could, it, so, so we'll see, but I think so for the time, so, so, you know, five years from now, that'll be great. Right now, I'd be pretty annoyed if I was at a conference and I couldn't both put, a, a USB key and into my machine and plug it in at the same time. That would probably bug the hell out of me. But um, yeah, I, I'm sure that Apple does studies of these things, and it's just the part of the um, adoption curve, or I guess it's the non-adoption curve, the getting rid of things curve. They're higher up on it in terms of when they get rid of something. So when they start to see that, um, you know, let's say. 70% of people never use a thumb drive, even though there's 30% of people are like mills that they need thumb drives all the time. But once they see that there's a good chunk of people that aren't using an optical drive at all, um, I think they're ready to go. Whereas Microsoft is in fact, as we discussed at the top of the podcast, exactly the opposite. They'll wait until 70% of people um, are not using, uh, a, or excuse me, 70, 30% of people are not using a uh, 
um, right. a drive. And so, um, you know, they're, they're, in other words, very conservative in terms of getting rid of something. And I think Apple just feels like their whole role is to go ahead and push things forward. And it's clearly a vision um, where of the future where I think they just feel like iCloud and Dropbox are sort of it and you'll be online and, uh, you know, everyone else will be left behind. And even things like you're starting to see a lot more. Um, I, I, I can't remember what the technology is called, but those the, the, the charging capabilities on phones where you just kind of put the phone on a mat. Like it doesn't, you don't have to wireless. Yeah. Wireless charging and stuff like that's all coming. Um, and so, right. So Apple's just, I think ahead of it in this case. Um, yeah, I'm waiting for the isotope charger where the, you know, the slow dissolving of the nuclear structure will create the electromagnetic field necessary to charge my devices in the ether. That'll be awesome. Cancer maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, Fine, fine but, for, but for three of us who already have had children, but um, right. But yeah. but I assume for my lap. I assume for power users. I mean, people have talked about adding a dock to this thing, which seems a little clumsy. I think actually the more elegant way of going about this, if you really do need peripherals, and and usually if you need peripherals, it means you're a power user. You probably have an external monitor, and almost all external monitors, even now, um, out of one port, can drive. A whole bunch of things because you can stick a whole bunch of USB drives off of the monitor instead of the, the right. laptop itself, and then you just run it that way. Yeah, well, you know, we'll we'll see how this all goes. But but I just want to remind our friends at Apple, Steve Jobs is dead. <laughs> it's okay to have USB drives. I swear. Um, we okay. uh, can I just say one more thing on this? We have sure. got we've got to link to the uh, Onion. Um, video of the release of the one button macbook does anyone remember that (laughs) that's right where it doesn't have a keyboard either it's just one button it's it's a great great video especially when they show how to type on it especially if you you need accents um that is the the world's greatest uh video of, of these things and you know look it's only one button what could be simpler what could be simpler? Well, turning from the, the grumpiness of these three classic podcasters, I want to just say one thing before we finish up today, and that is that um, we, uh, you know, we, we've uh, universities and other digital humanities kind of focused people or just people out in the community have really gotten interested in this thing that Bill Turkel, our friend, has been talking about for, I don't know, 15 years or so, and that's the maker movement. And so thereby proving that Bill is still way ahead of almost anybody. But um, I went to a maker fair here in Northern Virginia over the weekend, and and I got to tell you, it's a pretty inspiring and cool place. And and it was people, it was the Nor- Nova Labs mini maker fair. And I went in part because a group of students from George Mason had a, had a, some of their wares, the things that they'd made and created set up there. Um, but it was really kind of cool and inspirational to walk around. And I, and I would recommend to anybody in the digital humanities community or just interested in education and technology to go find, look up where the closest maker fair spelled F A I R E, um, in to where you are, uh, where that might be, um, or if you're traveling somewhere, look and see if there's a maker fair nearby, and just go and just kind of wander around because there were drones flying around the room. There were, um, you know, 3D printers almost everywhere, but there were also people with sewing machines and beekeepers and and um, you know ceramics people and just making stuff. And a lot of it was technology connected, and some of it wasn't. And um, one of the things that 
so I walked out of there with like nine different ideas about what I might do with my students. Of course, I have to actually learn how to do these things myself before I ask my students to do it. But, um, but uh, Tom, Dan, have you either of you been to a maker fair? You know, I've never been to one, and I've I would love to go. I mean, I've read similar kinds of things like Make Magazine when that started. Um, I was very into kind of leafing through it, but I've just never been to an actual um, physical event. It seems like you can get a lot of ideas for things to do. Yeah, yeah, no, I haven't, I haven't been to one either. Um, although I was, um, just, what was that? I was just yesterday. Uh, it seems already like a week ago. Um, I was just yesterday, um, visiting the Rhode Island Humanities Council. Um, and they are located in a building, um, in downtown Providence that also houses like art artist studios and things. And there, there is a, a, a maker space, a kind of public maker space where, um, you can kind of, it's like has drop in hours where you can drop in and they'll show you how to use a lathe and they'll show you how to use a, a laser cutter and they'll show you how to use a, a, a 3d printer and they'll do even show you how to do some web development. And, um, and that was a pretty amazing space. Um, and I know that those there are those kinds of spaces um, in a lot of cities now. Um, and in fact, in a lot of uh, a lot of public libraries are starting to to build those kinds of spaces. Um, and I, it it was pretty inspiring just to just to sort of see the the range of things that you could do in a space like that. Um, yeah, I mean, this is something that has been right. I mean, this is something that has been going on for a while now, um, but that I've just never quite latched onto for for lack of time or whatever else. But but I was. I, it's funny that you bring it up because I, I was pretty inspired by it yesterday. Yeah, it's it's um it's some pretty cool stuff, and and um like I say, it's just it's just pretty inspiring to walk around. It's it's one of those experiences where you walk out just kind of full of ideas. Um, and our, our Mason students were, were pretty awesome because one of them has come up with a, a device for uh, making your own K-cups for your Keurig coffee dispenser. Hmm. And, and, and I said to him, boy, you know, the Keurig Corporation is going to be kind of pissed at you, aren't they? And he said, well, that's why, we're, why we do this. And, and, you know, we like to break the mold. So, so he was helping people make their own like right there at the fair. They could, he had a mix of different kinds of teas and you could make your own K-cup full of your own tea mix just the way you like it. Um, but the, the hit of the Mason table, they had several tables there. And, and this will then bring us full circle to our classic theme. The hit on that table was a Smith Corona electric typewriter. And the students had hacked it so that you would type on the electric typewriter to get on their mailing list. You would type on the typewriter your name and your email address. And everybody, the people coming by are like, oh, I've heard about a typewriter. This is really a typewriter? <laughs> this is cool. And you know, the keys make that, that really loud noise when you press them. You know, and, and they're like, oh, look how that does that. Is there like ink in that ribbon thing? So that was, that's cool. But the students had hacked it together so that, so that it was also – putting your email address into a database. Mm. Pretty awesome stuff. So a mixture of the classic and the future. What could be better and what could be more digital campus? So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Tom. And we'll talk to you soon. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Oh.
please visit us online at digitalcampus.tv, where you can join in the discussion and let us know about stories and issues you would like us to cover on future episodes. Mike O'Malley wrote our theme music. Ask not what your country